if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Indeed, hour number two underway now at eight minutes past ten o'clock on this Tuesday, the ninth morning of the month of October in the year of our Lord, 2018. Thank you so much for joining us. It is intimidating to a lot of people. The second you start throwing terms like white supremacy around, people cower. What is the right response for reasonable people of all races when faced with an argument like this, which doesn't make sense but has emotional resonance and is scary? What do you say? Well, I think you have to point out what the facts are. Here it is uh, absurd, it is ridiculous, but it is also the only card that the progressive forces have. By engaging in identity politics, as Heather indicated, it metastasizes up from K through 12 and colleges. Now it's in our political discourse because we really haven't heard any meaningful policy prescriptions from progressives since who knows when, but clearly since 2016. So everything is about race. Everything is about gender because they have to pit one group against the other for their electoral advantage. Consider for a moment that if Democrats don't get at least 90 percent of the black vote, they go the way of the Whig party in this country. Despite the fact that they've gotten 90 percent plus of the black vote, they've lost three of the last five presidential elections. So regardless of what the facts are, regardless of what the issue is, they must make it about identity because they have no meaningful policy prescriptions. P.T. Barnum once said, always leave them wanting more. And that's what Tucker Carlson did last night when he had Peter Kersenow on. I heard that bit from Peter Kersenow and I said, I need more. And that's why he's right here on AM 1420, The Answer with us this morning. Pete, good morning, good sir. How are you? Bob, uh, I could do a lot better, <laughs> but, you know, there's always, uh, you know, light at the edge of, end of the tunnel. You just hope it's not an oncoming train, but 376 days to the 2019 World Series, hope springs eternal, and 117 days to the 2019 Super Bowl. You are going to do that, huh? You're going to go there. <laughs> well, uh, I don't think it's going to happen this year, but I have to admit, uh, I, Bob, I bet you, like I and many of your listeners, for the first time in a long, long time, I can't remember, actually look forward to Sunday afternoons. I'll tell you uh, what. The Browns, yeah. are, uh, Browns are actually putting some product on the field. 
that defense was absolutely smothering of the uh, Ravens on Sunday. I will give them all the credit in the world. I mean, Flacco and the offense of the Ravens started, I think, like five of their first seven drives at their own 40 or better. And at that point, they had three points. So the the Browns defense was absolutely uh, tremendous. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, some of us who knew football uh, kind of saw what Baker Mayfield uh, brings to the table. So, yeah, absolutely, um, Bob. And, and you better give <laughs> Hugh a call about that again. Because oh, I am. Baker Mayfield is the real deal as far as I'm concerned. And it's the first time in a long time I can remember us having a quarterback. I wonder if he could work out of the bullpen. Maybe we'd still be in the series. <laughs> I don't know, just whatever. Uh, all right, Pete, let's get, let's get serious now. Uh, in, in all honor, Peter Kirsten, of course, Cleveland attorney, member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and the host of the Kirstenau Report, daily commentary, as you hear right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Pete, you were on Tucker last night, talking about the identity politics. You, Heather McDonald, who's wonderful, by the way, all three of you guys, made for a great segment, talking about the identity politics of the, of the left and how they have continued to try, even in a situation in which a white woman was accusing a white man of a crime trying to somehow bring race into the equation. And I'm talking about Dr. Ford and Brett Kavanaugh trying to make this a racial issue in some way, shape, or form, trying to punish the white patriarchy, uh, trying to punish Brett Kavanaugh for the sins of, of white sexual assaulters everywhere. Um, you, you, I think very articulately and very, um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You did it in short, concise fashion, uh, argued the point, but I want more. I want more detail now because you and I have had some of these conversations off the air about this, um, uh, this appeal to identity politics, particularly when it comes to race. And what you said there just in passing almost about, um, 90% vote of the black vote. They're in very grave danger, I think, in large part because people of all colors recognize how horrific what was done to Brett Kavanaugh. They're losing the black vote among uh, among other demographics, Pete. Um, here's the real problem for the left. Uh, they're bereft of ideas other than, you know, let's just spread the wealth around. Let's just ha- put us in power so we can do whatever we want to do. They have no real policy prescriptions that I indicated on Tucker. It is really the height of absurdity to allege that the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings had anything to do with race. Everybody within shouting distance was white. I mean, it's sheer lunacy, but that's immaterial to the left because it's essential for them to continue to hammer on identity politics, as I said on Tucker, because truthfully, they have nothing else. So they've got to stoke the rage of various discrete identity groups so that for whatever reason that they can't articulate, and you saw it over the weekend with all these screeching individuals, they can't even articulate a sane and coherent message. But all they know is they're angry, and they're angry at Republicans, and you know, it's just an, an amazing mob mentality that takes over. That's what the left has right now. And when you think about, you break it down a little bit. You mentioned uh, blacks, and there's all kinds of other subgroups that I think, I think everybody uh, of goodwill was horrified by the entire display that we've seen over a number of weeks, not, not just during the last few weeks with respect to uh, Christine Blasey Ford and all these uh, allegations that came out of the woodwork. And by the way, as you probably know, there's emerging evidence out there that this was an orchestrated hit job very similar to what happened in terms of the Russia collusion with many of the same players involved. It's really kind of extraordinary. Tom Cotton talked about this. There have been some others who've been bringing up some evidence of this, but, but I, I'll put that to aside for a moment. Um, take a look at everything that's transpired over the last several months, 
And I think a lot of people of goodwill are turned off by this. Let's talk about the electoral imperatives here and why it's so dangerous for Democrats or progressives. As uh, you, you just played in that clip, typically uh, the Democratic Party gets about 90% of the black vote plus, 90% plus. Um, Donald Trump got 8% of the black vote in 2016, which is about average for a Republican presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, George W. Bush, I think, had a high watermark of 10% at one point. Mm -hmm. But if Democrats don't get 90% of the black vote, as I say in that segment, they go the way of the weak party. They are not competitive. Now, here's what's scary to Democrats, and I think it fuels a little bit of the, uh, the scenes that you've seen over the last few weeks and why they make everything about race and or gender or other subgroups, but they've always got to inject race into it, even when everybody involved is lily white. Um, the approval rating for Donald Trump a year ago rose all the way to 18%. Now that sounds minuscule, but it's a huge amount for a Republican president in terms of the black approval rating. Right. That was a year ago. And despite the histrionic claims of racism and white supremacy and everything else about Trump and the entire Trump administration, it now is between 31 to 36%, levels unheard of for Republicans. Now, some of this has to do with the fact that, yeah, we've got the, the best economy we've had in our lifetimes, that black unemployment is at historic lows, or the lowest in history. Black medium household income is the highest in history. There are a lot of good things going on. Now, that 36% doesn't necessarily translate into 36% of the vote for Republican candidates or for Donald Trump in 2020, but what it does do is suggest that it's going to be a lot higher than 8%. And as I said before, if it ticks above 10%, Democrats become almost obsolete. Done. It's really a dangerous position to be in for them, so they've got to constantly say that that guy's racist over there, that guy's racist over there, this person's racist over there, to make sure that there's fury generated among the black electorate and that they vote, quote-unquote, the right way. Peter Kirsten, I was your guest. We're talking identity politics. We're talking about racial democratic voting, uh, democra racial demographic voting, rather. Pete, uh, I'm going to throw you a curveball right now. This is not something I planned to ask you about because it is not something I could have planned. Literally just seconds ago, this came across my screen, and I want to get your reaction to it. Nikki Haley is done. President Trump has accepted Nikki Haley's resignation as U.N. ambassador. Wow. Well, that's yeah. a very, that's a big surprise. As you were speaking, it just came across yeah. my screen, and I thought I would ask you about it. I know you have been a big champion of hers, and so have I. I think everybody who has seen her operate uh, uh, in uh, the United Nations in her role has been so uh, tremendously impressed and grateful to her for standing up for this country, standing up for our allies like Israel in the face of U.N. atrocities, the way they've treated uh, Israel, for example. Uh, Fox News saying it's unclear why Haley resigned. The former governor was confirmed as U.N. ambassador four days after Trump was inaugurated. He is expected to speak at the Oval Office in about, well, now 12 minutes at about 1030, developing story. This is, I don't know what the reason is, and maybe it'll make more sense in a few minutes, uh, Pete, but uh, that's that's terrible, terrible news. She has been, in my view, one of the best assets that the entire Trump administration has had going. 
Yeah, I agree. She's been a stalwart at the United Nations, you know, for so long. Even prior to the Obama administration, it seems as if we bent over for nations that, frankly, uh, aren't fit to carry our luggage. Um, And Nikki Haley has been a stalwart in putting the America First agenda first and foremost and being unapologetic for the United States of America before the UN. And remember, uh, the UN Human Rights Council is the most absurdly named organization in the world. And the Trump administration for the first time said, look, we're not going to be, we're not playing with the Human Rights Council, which has a lot of members that are totalitarian states are members of it, mm-hmm. uh, members that violate human rights with impunity constantly. And what it is, is an advocacy subgroup within the UN to attack the United States and Israel. That's all they do, frankly. They've never issued condemnations of some of the most horrific violators of human rights in the world, but they constantly issue resolutions against Israel or against the United States. And Nikki Haley has been standing up for America and putting things right. The Obama administration just used to say, well, you know, what the heck, the Human Rights Commission is a, is a great organization. Uh, we need to be a member of the organization. No, you don't continue to feed the beast. You make sure that justice and right prevail. And that's not what previous administrations, well, I'll just leave it at the Obama administrations were doing. I'm going to uh, speculate by way of wishful thinking here and hope that we're not losing her. Maybe she's resigning the UN because she is going to take a different post within the administration. Maybe there is something else that he has planned for her or that she has planned or, or some combination of the two. I just hope that this is not a bad parting. I hope there's not disagreement in the, uh, uh, in the way she has been running things at the UN. I can't imagine there is because the president has been nothing but praise, uh, given her nothing but praise and, um, and it, every single bit of it has been warranted. But we'll find out more, I guess, uh, in a few minutes. She's supposed to, or he is supposed to talk at the Oval Office at 10.30. Pete, we'll use that to take our time out here. I want to come back and get a little bit more on the Kavanaugh situation and the Democrats' chaos that they are continuing to uh, to uh, foment as we get closer and closer to this midterm. And we'll find out whether they're continuing to uh, to uh, foment as we get closer and closer to this midterm. And we'll find out whether or not you think it'll pay off for them. If the um, galvanization of the Republican vote, which I think is happening, is going to be counteracted by the galvanization of the angry uh, Democrats who just lost another massive political fight. That's coming up on AM 1420 The Answer. I can see her lying back in her satin dress In a room where you do what you don't In 60. All right, 1025, now the Bob France Authority continues on AM 1420 The Answer. Peter Kersenow is back with us as well, Cleveland attorney, member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, host of the Kersenow Report, author of Target Omega and Second Strike, books you must have. Breaking news just moments ago, uh, Nikki Haley, U.N. ambassador, announcing, well, not announcing, but reports are that she has uh, resigned from her post, and uh, the president is supposed to address this coming up in minutes uh, from the Oval Office. We'll, uh, we'll follow that and update you on that as we go. Pete, I want to get back to... Um, what your story, I was teasing and promoting your article in uh, National Review uh, earlier today, and it's very, very similar. You talk about what turned you into a Republican. It was largely what happened, the behavior of Senate Democrats during the Clarence Thomas hearings and the Anita Hill accusations. And I just read a piece on the Federalist from, uh, um, uh, she was a little bit different. She had been a Republican until Trump, didn't like him, uh, left the Republican Party uh, as a result of Trump. But now after watching, after the last two years, but specifically over the last three weeks of watching what was done to Brett Kavanaugh, she, uh, her name is uh, Krista Kaffer or Kaffer, 
Um, she says she's back and she is ready to fight for and with the Republican Party because of what she just saw happen. So it's almost a mirror to what happened to you in the in the um, Clarence Thomas hearings. Do you think there are more of you and more of her, more and more people coming around, uh, kind of um, you know, kind of uh, uh, rallying together in support against the evil that the Democrats tried to perpetrate? I know there are because I hear from them on a daily basis, and also because it's simply common sense. There are too many people of goodwill and who have brains that watch the horror show that transpired over the last several weeks and know who the perpetrators of that horror show are. And as I said in the previous segment, the perpetrators have not put forth any meaningful policy prescriptions. All they've been doing is yelling and screeching and engaging in some of the most despicable behavior manageable. As I indicated in the National Review piece, which was very short, it was just a little description as to how I made my conversion to the Republican Party. I was a lifelong conservative, but I'd always had a D after my name. Uh, it's kind of, it was kind of a legacy. You know, my, my parents had Ds after their names. They switched to Rs. But at some point, uh, I remained a D because I live in Cleveland in an all-Democratic ward. My wife and I are the only registered Republicans there. And so if I was going to have any input into, you know, the selection of any of my representatives or anything, it just made sense. But after the Clarence Thomas hearings, I said, no more. I can't, I don't want to have any association with a party that would do things like this. And the Clarence Thomas hearings, frankly, were mild in comparison, extraordinarily mild in comparison to what transpired with the um, uh, uh, Kavanaugh confirmation yeah. hearings. So I have to believe that a lot of people of goodwill, um, for numerous reasons, but one of which is a gut check reason that you don't want to be member of a group that has, you know, this kind of behavior. And remember, it comes from the very top. We're seeing senators do this. This is not just simply some random activists. You have senators and Congress people who are exhorting people to do things that are at best questionable and in some cases at least intimate that they should be engaging in some kind of hostile or violent acts. Maxine Waters constantly saying, get in somebody's face. And look, all it takes is for someone prominent with a big megaphone to say something like that. And there's always unhinged people out there who are going to take it one step further. And we remember when Democrats were constantly uh, remonstrating Republicans for engaging in, you know, hateful speech and things like that. Remember the, uh, the Arizona, uh, the Gabby uh, Giffords shooting where they went completely off. The, it turns out that the guy who was the shooter was deranged, was, if anything, a liberal. But that didn't prevent the media and the Democrats, but I repeat myself, from saying, well, this is because Republicans haven't checked their base of engaging in, you know, this kind of exhortation of violence. Well, we have overt examples of prominent Democrats either uh, insinuating that this type of behavior is okay or refusing, despite appeals to do so, to tell their followers, their, uh, their voters to not engage in this kind of, of behavior. They're engaging in irresponsible rhetoric. But aside from the rhetoric, look at how they treated Kavanaugh here. And it, it was truly despicable. And I think a lot of people of goodwill say, you know, enough. I'm, I'm done with this kind of stuff. But what, about, what if, about the flip side, though, Pete? What about the flip side? Because you're right. They tried all of those things and couldn't stop him anyway. They still got the votes. He's still seated. The court now has a right lean to it. Uh, and, and they're livid. And they are coming out. Uh, just for an example, another Hollywood star or whatever you want to call Taylor Swift and she's a singer but she went out and, and did an impassioned 
plea to vote and support Democrats on her Instagram page. And according to reports, um, voter registrations yesterday spiked shortly after she uh, exhorted young people to get out there and register to vote and to vote for Democrats. So they are also galvanized, I think, to a degree uh, in their defeat. The fact that they lost has made them even more furious and more willing to go out there and create that quote-unquote blue wave. There's no doubt an element of that. I do think, though, that that's, it's going to be less of a case than with respect to... Look, if you watched the proceedings, there is no way that you compare <clears throat> apples to apples on this. The behavior of the Republicans versus the behavior of the Democrats were night and day. Agreed. I think that's going to have more influence, and I think people of goodwill... Yeah, I think there's going to be some millennials that sign up and some others who sign up. Uh, anyone who had a brain and of goodwill watched those proceedings and said, this is craziness. And this kind of continued behavior leads to the kind of governance that we don't want to have any part of, frankly. And aside from that, um, at least what you could say about the Republicans is that, and especially with the Trump administration, is they are a font of policy ideas. And those policy ideas are actually benefiting the country extraordinarily. Whereas the Democrats, can anybody cite one discrete, meaningful policy prescription that they've come up with since 2016, other than impeachment? Yeah, uh, yeah, Medicare for all. Thirty-two trillion dollars later, Medicare for all. That's a, there's a policy prescription that they have offered. Exactly, uh, Pete. Let exactly. me get out here because we're late. I want to get to the news. I want to see if the president speaks and get your reaction on the other side of that. Peter Kirsten, now with us one more time right after this on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. The truth you are experiencing. The truth. The Bob France Authority on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. All right, 1037 now. We continue the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer, Peter Kersenow's got one more segment left in him, and we appreciate that. We're also awaiting the uh, uh, press conference or the statement, at least, from the president who's supposed to speak from the Oval Office about the uh, uh, resignation of U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Came to a shock, or came as a shock, rather, to a lot of us. Peter, I think yourself included, uh, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of turnover in this administration. We've seen a lot of turnover in a lot of administrations, not trying to say this is extraordinarily unique to the president, but I think maybe a little bit more so, especially in the first, you know, two years of his of his um, administration. Um, is, is this something to be concerned about, in your opinion, or do we need to wait and see the reason for her departure before we can? Yeah, I think, I think we need to wait and see. I mean, I don't like the idea of a Nikki Haley departing from the UN because she's been so effective there, but I don't know the reason for it. Maybe she's going to be taking on a different role with the administration. Maybe after two years, she could be burned out, uh, maybe looking for other opportunities. Who knows? Uh, I'm just going to take a wait-and-see attitude on this. I did note that uh, the president tweeted that he had a big announcement with his friend Nikki Haley, um, so let's see what that announcement is. If it's anything more than a resignation, maybe it is taking on another role. Yeah, I, I I can only hope so. I just I'm such a fan of hers. I've just you know become such a big uh, supporter of of everything she has done, the way she has comported herself uh, through her entire um, uh, role as the UN ambassador, and, and really even going back to her time as uh, as the governor in South Carolina. Pete, I want to talk a little bit more before we're done here about uh, the left and their tactics and what they're doing from here, because there was an article uh, calling for the left and the Democrat Party to be more ruthless. 
to be more ruthless because they continue to be uh, trampled on by the Republicans. So they have to be in terms of losing all of these political fights, whether it be the election, whether it be Supreme Court battles and so on and so forth. They need to be more ruthless as if shooting uh, congressmen at a baseball field uh, isn't ruthless enough, as if uh, chasing people out of restaurants isn't ruthless enough, as if assaulting as if assaulting senators in their yards isn't ruthless enough. They're calling for more. Uh, and then there's this. A tweet from Annie Shields, who is described as a somebody who works for The National, which is a far-left publication, and she is also apparently a Democratic Socialist. This tweet yesterday struck me. I am starting a national at-dem socialist working group to follow Jeff Flake around to every restaurant, cafe, store, etc. that he goes to for the rest of his life and yell at him. Um, I, I do not take that as a light threat. I do not take that as being, uh, you know, uh, tongue in cheek. I think literally they're going to do that. We saw what happened to Ted Cruz. We saw what happened to so many other people, even non-elected officials like Brian Kilmeade from Fox and Friends being harassed and tormented as he walked to the subway in New York. They are getting more ruthless. And I, Pete, don't un- frankly don't understand how they don't see that it's backfiring because independent, normal, middle-of-the-road people see these tactics and are disgusted by them. They're not going to be rewarded for this. It's only going to hurt them. I agree, Bob. And if they want to go down this road, this is a road that the left habitually goes down throughout history, and it's always had dire consequences in other nations. And this is getting to the point where it could have similar consequences here in the United States. We've already had, you just described, you know, Steve Scalise. You described there was a, the attempted stabbing of a congressional candidate, a Republican congressional candidate. Uh, you know, you mentioned Rand Paul, the death threats that have been ubiquitous out there. I even saw a tweet yesterday from some idiot uh, who said, you know, who's going to take one for the team and kill Kavanaugh? Uh, they, right. These people are they, completely unhinged. What's amazing Susan about Collins is, facing rape threats, not just death threats, but rape threats. Mrs. Right. Kavanaugh, Ashley Kavanaugh and the daughters threatened to be raped and murdered uh, to show Brett Kavanaugh what it's like to uh, to abuse women. I, I mean, all of the unhinged, Pete, I don't know if there's another word for it, but 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 that doesn't even do it, do it justice anymore. Yeah, it doesn't. You try to think of an appropriate adjective, and, you know, the uh, words fail. What we need is for some Democrat in prominent position, not just some, but all of them in prominent position, to do the opposite of what they've been doing. That is, either remaining silent or tacitly urging or exhorting these people to do so is to stand up and say no more. You have to stop it right now. I don't know it's within the capacity, however, of the left to do so. It's in throughout history, it truly hasn't been. And they, well, I will say this. If they go down that path, frankly, you know, the, the path of violence is the wrong path whatsoever. But my goodness, you don't want to poke a sleeping giant. I would gather, I would, I would hazard a guess that there's probably a little bit more muscle on the right side of the equation. I'm saying that facetiously. Uh, every time I see leftists, I mean, they don't necessarily scare me. But you never, you know, you ne- never know when you be get hit from behind, or you, you, you see what happened to Rand Paul, as I indicated, with all these death threats. This is serious business. And so where are the Democrats? Where's the media? Again, but I repeat myself. Well, that's, where that's are big. Pete, yeah, go, go back to the where are the Democrats part. Some of these 
threats and some of this language and, and some of I mean, it's on television, it's on CNN, and we're hearing it from elected officials. Where are the Democrats call in calling for civility? Where are the Democrats in calling for restraint? Where are the Democrats in saying, hey, we're going to fight the Republicans and all of the things that they stand for, but we're going to do so at the ballot box, not in the streets, not in the restaurants. When are they going to call for civil decency? Because if they don't, they are complicit in everything that happens. They do. And as I alluded to just a few moments ago, uh, aside from prominent Democrats, the media is complicit in this. If you, and every once in a while, I swerve by a CNN, MSNBC, and other stations just to see what the other side is up to, and what you see there is a reflection of the unhinged nature of the left, where you had in the past responsible journalists, and I mean a distance past, maybe 30 years ago, Today, what you have is nothing more than party advocates, and not even party advocates. These people are radical on steroids, and they're some of the same people saying things that some of the lunatics out on the street are saying. We're in an extraordinary uh, time right now, Bob, and it may not end well. I hate to say that, but I've not experienced in my lifetime the level of animosity between the parties that I see today, even during the 1960s, it wasn't at every juncture. It didn't suffuse every aspect of society. But you can't turn around these days without there being some kind of acrimony related to politics in in sports. You know, we get the kneeling, we get the mm-hmm. you know the uh, you know, all kinds of demonstrations, whether it be on entertainment shows, whether it be Taylor Swift. You know, frankly, I don't know about you, Bob. Um, Taylor Swift, I've never listened to any of her songs. I understand she's gigantically popular, but I generally don't take my political instruction from entertainers, just as I don't think in the past people took political instructions from the court jesters. No disrespect to them. No, no, but but here's the thing. Here's the thing, my friend. You don't, and I don't, but there are a whole lot of high school age kids who are going to turn 18 and who are going to vote for the first time. They do. That Those are the things that I worry about. The millennial generation of entertainers who are out there impacting new young voters, which is, of course, what the left has been counting on for a long time, is they've indoctrinated students, you know, in, in middle, high, sometimes even before middle school, but middle, high, uh, high school and, um, and in college. But, but th- these are the people that, that Taylor Swift is going for. She's not going to do anything to you, but she, she may impact the mindset of, of, of other young people who lo- love her music. Yeah, that's true, although I will say, and who knows, it may change with this election cycle. Um, That's happened in the past. It's been the case for the last 50 years, and each time the Democrats and the left are disappointed when the youth vote doesn't turn out the way they thought it was going to turn out. Um, You know, when you are a millennial, very often you may get agitated, you may make a lot of noise, but then you forget to find your way to the voting booth. That's a very that's interesting. That's interesting. Although, again, you know the, the 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 one thing that I will say, the Kavanaugh hearings have done, which you've articulated very clearly, uh, it has increased the level of importance of this particular election to Republicans or Republican leaning voters. About a month ago, they were uh, there was about about a twelve point gap in the polls that showed Democrat and Democrat leaning voters find this upcoming election to be important or very important uh, compared to Republican. In the last poll, which is just a couple of days ago, that has narrowed to a two-point gap. It's 80% of Republicans who find it important or very important. So that means we've grown, and we do.
do understand. However, it remains high at 82% for the Democrats. I don't think they're going to forget to vote. No, they're not going to forget to vote, but I think that a lot of millennials, remember, um, I, I do believe, and it's been borne out by history, that the millennials who do vote are the more responsible millennials. I mean, you could be energized and angry and then just not vote. But the more responsible millennials are more likely to lean to the Republican side than they are the Democrat side. So I don't discount what you're saying, Bob. I do think the millennial vote will give the Democrats a little bit more of an edge, but it doesn't particularly concern me. What what concerns me is the overall energized Democratic base, and they are. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There was, I believed, that just based on historical experience, that Republicans would lose the House in this midterm. That's been the case for years and years and years. But um, what happened is the Democrats made a huge mistake. They now have energized Republicans big time. And as I said to you a couple weeks ago, I've never seen the Republican base this energized in my lifetime. Yeah, I haven't either. I haven't either. And like I said, I've read another story that is very similar to yours, and there are more and more people who are retweeting that are saying, yeah, me too. Uh, in fact, here's a story. How about that for irony? Me too. Um, uh, interesting uh, uh, survey from CNN and SSRS polling finds more independents disapprove of Democrats' treatment of Kavanaugh by a wide margin, a 28-point margin, according to this survey. Pete, that speaks volumes to me, meaning, yes, the Democrats are energized, and they're going to go and vote in massive numbers and with massive massive enthusiasm, and people on the right are going to do the same thing. But it's that independent vote. Those are the ones that may or may not have been driven to the polls for one reason or another. They are almost solidly behind the Republicans and defending Brett Kavanaugh against the treatment of the Democrats, and that might be the difference come November 6. You and I watched the proceedings. We thought that they were an abomination. Most Americans of goodwill believe the same thing. And I'm not going to make the standard political statement that politicians make that they believe the American people or have faith in the American people, but history proves it out. History established that. Just look at 2016 when all the polls, every single poll said it was going to be a landslide for Clinton. Every single one. And we know what happened. So uh, I think that the polls that show Republicans gaining ground, just based on my anecdotal experience, probably mm-hmm. make some sense. I think the Republicans are going to lose house uh, seats in the House. I don't know if it's going to be enough to turn the House. I think we keep the Senate. Uh, but a lot can happen between now and Election Day. But I do think what we saw with respect to the Kavanaugh hearing is a galvanizing event for Republicans going forward and not just for this election cycle. Peter Kersenow, great stuff, my friend. I kept you longer than you need, than you were able, so thank you for sticking it out with us. And uh, obviously, we'll keep our eyes on the Nikki Haley story, and perhaps we'll have you back on again to talk about that. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. Peter Kersenow, AM 1420, The Answer. It's 1050. Still awaiting the president's remarks from the Oval Office. The announcement of Nikki Haley, the U.N. ambassador, resigning her position. The president has accepted that resignation. The president says, according to Twitter, that he has a huge announcement. Uh, whether that is the announcement, the resignation of Haley, or there is something related to that, such as the appointment of Nikki Haley to a different position, well, that's what we're all waiting to find out. And if we can get it before 11 o'clock, we'll bring it to you. Otherwise, Mike Gallagher, I'm sure, will have that news for you coming up after the top of the hour here on AM 1420, The Answer.
All right, it's 10.53. It looks like we're probably not going to be able to carry <clears throat> the president's uh, remarks from the Oval Office before uh, 11 o'clock. He was scheduled, according to the, the uh, uh, timeline provided by the White House, to speak at 10.30 from the Oval Office about Nikki Haley and her resignation from her post as U.N. ambassador. Uh, obviously, he has not yet started speaking. If he had been, we would have that for you. We're going to carry it live. Uh, but if we're done in about six minutes, you're going to have to get that information from Mike Gallagher. So make sure you stay here for that. The question uh, is, uh, what's the reason for this? Is there a departure or a separation, a disagreement uh, from a policy standpoint as it pertains to our role in the United Nations? Uh, is there discord or is this a change slash promotion for Nikki Haley to some other position within the administration. A reward, perhaps. President Trump has accepted Nikki Haley's resignation as U.N. ambassador, we are told. The two said Tuesday morning in a public Oval Office meeting. She will exit at the end of the year. Uh, According to Axios, Haley discussed her resignation with Trump last week when she visited him at the White House. Her news shocked a number of senior foreign policy officials in the Trump administration. Trump told reporters today that Haley raised the possibility of taking a break six months ago and that she's welcome back any time. Haley, for her part, added, again according to Axios, that she has no 2020 ambitions and will campaign for the president. Uh, Haley is the former governor of South Carolina, easily confirmed four days after President Trump's inauguration in 2017. She has overseen the president's shift in dealing with the U.N., including the U.S. exit from the U.N. Human Rights Council, which Haley called the organization's greatest failure. And she's right, by the way. That's one of the reasons why so many of us love Nikki Haley as U.N. ambassador. She had a spine or has a spine. She's, She's had the guts to stand up to the phonies and frauds at the United Nations who continue to abuse nation or uh, uh, council or excuse me um, member nations who you know they abuse them like Israel for example treating them like a you know a whipping boy UN human rights council filled with countries that violate human rights on the daily they're the ones passing judgment of other countries in such a way it's been just accepted by the U, uh, UN ambassador of the United States, no matter who that person has been, for decades. Nikki Haley has stepped up and said no more. She has been in lockstep with the president on this. And that's why so many of us were really impressed by her and really uh, you know, enthused and motivated by her as she improves our standing in the world by not kowtowing to the rest of the world, being the leaders that we're supposed to be. It's also worth noting that Haley wrote a public op-ed last month challenging the New York Times anonymous op-ed, which was written by a, quote, senior administrative official, administration official, rather, and claimed that Trump aides saw him as a threat to U.S. democracy. You remember this. This is one of the, uh, you know, deep state um, methods of trying to undermine the president's authority and the president's administration uh, when this, quote, unquote, you know, anonymous campaign insider, not campaign, but administration insider wrote this, hey, Trump is dangerous, and we're trying to stop him from the inside. We don't even know if that was written by a member of the Trump administration or if it was fabricated out of whole cloth by some New York Times writer. But Nikki Haley challenged it and said, quote, I don't agree with the president on everything. When there is disagreement, there's a right way and a wrong way to address it. I pick up the phone and call him or meet with him in person. 
like my colleagues in the cabinet and on the National Security Council, I have very open access to the president. He does not shut out his advisors. He does not demand that everyone agree with him. I can talk to him most any time, and I frequently do. If I disagree with something and believe it is important enough to raise with the president, I do it. And he listens. So this does not, this is written less than a month ago. It does not sound like there is any kind of disharmony or discord or, or problem of communication or problem of policy or anything else between the president and Nikki Haley. So it's just, this is 100%, you know, analysis and observation, if not outright speculation. It sounds like this is not a negative parting of the ways, but perhaps uh, a more positive um, step uh, in the Trump administration. Perhaps she's going to be appointed to a new position, or perhaps this is just as the president uh, suggested a, a while ago, a break. You know, a six-month break. Traveling the world, you know, as the U.N. ambassador is, is not an easy thing. And if you listen to other ambassadors talk about it, you know, being on the jet as often as they are, being away from family, being away from the United States, it is a taxing, taxing experience. And maybe she just doesn't want to deal with that any longer or maybe just needs a break. And we'll find out when the president makes this, uh, his appearance at the Oval Office coming up here, obviously expected to be shortly. Uh, but as mentioned, uh, we're going to have to turn this over to Mike Gallagher here. So whatever news you're going to get from the president about Nikki Haley's departure from the U.N., and hopefully her repositioning in another place in the Trump administration, you're going to have to get that information from Mike Gallagher. So Gallagher is coming up here after the top of the hour news. Thanks again to my guest today, Rob Walgate. Tremendous information on Ohio Issue 1. Vote no. And thanks uh, again also to uh, Peter Kersenow. And thanks to you for listening. Appreciate that as always. Stay where you are. Mike Gallagher is coming up next on AM 1420, The Answer. Bye-bye. Enjoy the silence. 